Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's fiction category manager. This is a podcast about books and the brilliant people who read them and write them. Today I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Shanu Prasad. Hi, Shanu. Hello, Ben. And it's our pleasure to have with us John Byron. John Byron is a writer who grew up in Sydney, now lives in Melbourne. The Tribute is his first novel. It was shortlisted for the prestigious Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Unpublished Manuscript in 2019. It was then picked up by Firm Press, who are the publishers of successes like Christian White and Pip Williams. And my goodness, The Tribute is a dark and creepy novel. John, it's a pleasure to have us. It's have ple- you with us. Yeah. It's a pleasure to be here creeping you out. <laughs> <laughs> um, where do we begin? Should we... Should you, Take us all the way back to your failed medical school years and tell us about this anatomy textbook that I, kind of sparked a fire for you. I can. Um, my failed medical... It still appears in my transcript when I've got a PhD from the same institution. There, above the PhD, is my failed medical school. Well, you um, can't scrub that. Can't scrub it. Oh. No, it's stuck with it. Anyway, May as well turn it into something useful right. in a novel, this then. Is, this is my <laughs> giving back to society of those years of publicly funded education. Um, while I was there, I learned about um, this, the foundation text of modern European anatomy, the Fabrica of Andreas Vesalius, a 16th century text. Um, but where I really got interested in it as potential for, uh, for fiction was... I was working my way through my um, medical degree at a, in a bar, like a lot of people do, and one of my colleagues was this really talented artist who um, had kind of missed his calling there and ended up in, a, in bar work for some reason, but he was obsessed with Vesalius and obsessed with this text. And that obsession is what kind of lodged itself in my mind for when I came back to, to writing fiction. And, um, and he, was, he was very good. He would, he would be ranting about <laughs> these anatomical drawings and then drawing them freehand from memory oh, on wow. the spot in wow. these incredibly, like, almost photorealistic renderings. It's amazing. And so while I am sure that that fellow hasn't broken any laws ever of any kind, he probably hasn't even crossed the street against the lights, um, the, the, the pitch of the obsession stuck with me. I thought, people really are into this stuff and, and there, are, there are train spotters of of anatomy texts mm. and um, yeah and so that's that's how this character came to be. I think that. we're all guilty of imagining a colleague as a potential serial killer at one <laughs> stage or another and I'm, I'm glad you've uh, you've mined that for something yeah. glorious. Yeah and, and so when I uh, when I left um, med school and um, you know for the greater good and um, and went into something where I'd be less dangerous um, the humanities and did a couple of English degrees um, you know that that also starts to, again, you, know, you pick up what the stuff that you do. So I was working my way through my arts degree in a, on a bank IT help desk and some of that insight into, um, into how much information about us all is swirling around out there has found its way into this as well. So, you know, you, you sort of do pick and choose things from your experience. So. Absolutely. And you've had such a, um, you know, an interesting and varied uh, career. I mean, in your little, in your bio, it sort of goes through all of the, you know, a number of different jobs that you've, that you've had. Um, it's only a so- small selection. Small selection. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. So there's, so what you're saying is there's many opportunities yeah. for many books to come. Maybe. To mine other yeah, parts yeah. of your life that you haven't could, quite explored yet in this, be. in this first well, book. You know, career has two real meanings in, in English. And one of them is the kind of really fake one about planning a, a very linear and logical and rational work life for yourself and the other is what an out of control car does down a suburban street <laughs> and so I've had that latter one as as my work history. As your work so, history. Yeah. 
Can you take me through the, the full academic gambit? I'm, I'm just getting the, the very smart guy vibes from you. So you, <laughs> you said uh, medicine, then a couple of English degrees, yeah. Yeah, to, to use yeah. your words. Yeah, yeah. So I did a, I did a BA in mostly a double major, actually, in English at Adelaide Uni. And I uh, did some philosophy and, um, and political science and, um, and astronomy, actually, as part of that, uh, which is fun on the way through. Um, and yeah, did honours there. And then, um, and then I did a PhD in English at, at Sydney Uni. And I wrote on film and philosophy so it's movies that that problematize uh, the nature of reality or or even the nature of one's own identity so Blade Runner and the Matrix and stuff like that yeah Terminator did you have to watch Terminator 2 I watched Terminator 2 for my film studies I did I didn't write on Terminator (laughs) 2 Um, it probably features on the way through like I made mention of lots of movies but there were sort of four main ones okay so how did you get from uh, (laughs) watching the Matrix and Terminator 2 to then working in Canberra. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so part of what I did while I was a, a postgrad student at Sydney Uni is I got, um, I got roped into being on the Sydney University Postgraduate Representative Association Council. Um, and so I got involved in that. And I discovered um, that uh, one of... Um, I discovered I had a, an interest in, in research policy and just as a kind of amateur political you know, um, I guess a student advocate, yep. and um, and I got involved in that, and I got myself elected to be the national president of the Council of Australian Postgraduate Associations in two thousand and one, which was a little bit of a detour. And my my supervisor at my, in the English department at Sydney Uni uh, retired during that year and didn't bother organising a new um, supervisor because he made the assumption, not unreasonable actually, that I probably wasn't coming back <laughs> because mostly when people go off to do that sort of stuff, they don't they come don't back. Come back yeah. um, but I did go back because I had a really great topic and I loved it and and I. You know, had got a really good supervisor, Dave Kelly, and uh, and went through, and that was that was all a good experience. But that's how I ended up in that realm. And during that year, there was a, the Senate did an inquiry into higher education, and I um, gave evidence to that. And uh, sort of you you'd sort of get in front of people who take notice of you and think, oh, this guy's all right. And then eventually, uh, I went to work at the Australian Academy of the Humanities. I was the executive director there for almost seven years, and uh, and then I went finally to across to the dark side, as they call it, and worked for Senator Kim Carr, who was then the Minister for Innovation, Industry, Science and Research. Did that time in Canberra, those winters in Canberra, um, give you the visions of dismembering bodies that ended up in this <laughs> novel? Or? No, not, not exactly. Um, it, it did mean I had to sell my Ducati. I had a beautiful oh. Ducati Monster 900 that um, was a gorgeous motorcycle, but it's just too cold in Canberra to, to ride a motorbike. Yeah, so I had to buy a windscreen and they come with a free car. So, yeah. <laughs> so that was the end of that. But... Um, no, I, I think that the, the political side of it, there are a few politicians that appear in here, um, so I, kind of, I guess I wrote those scenes with more, greater confidence than I might have <laughs> otherwise. They're not really based on anybody, but, um, and, they're, and they're not you know, central to the story, but um, you never know, a future one may well plumb those depths. Absolutely. <clears throat> Sorry, you'll have to excuse my um, <laughs> voice today. Um, so why then... This is the this is the question. I mean, I'm very we're very glad you did, but why did you then decide to write um, a crime novel as opposed to say a political thriller or um, you know a book about film or any of those other things? Yeah. What was it that drew you to um, to crime as the for your first novel? I've always read a lot of crime. I mean, I, I read pretty widely though. I, I'm interested in most genres and. Um, and I'm, I'm a voracious reader. I read fiction every day. Um, otherwise something goes bad in my head. Um, and, and so I guess 
that's you know it felt like a reasonably comfortable home for me mm -hmm. I felt like I understood the genre and what people are reading and and, and um, what the tropes are and so on but um, the other thing I really like about crime is that it seems like a genre that's so science fiction's great strength is it's really good at asking those big what-if questions mm -hmm. which is why four of the three of the four films that I wrote for my PhD happened to be in yep. science I wasn't really interested in the science fiction side of it per se but uh, those contexts are really great for asking those really fundamental yep. undermining kind of questions. What is humanity? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, all <laughs> of that, yeah. And so that lent itself. Um, but the other thing, so in crime though, it's really good at, at putting ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances and, and under a lot of pressure and seeing what happens. And yep. I think it's sort of um, a little bit like what Philip K. Dick said about, um, about the Ridley Scott's rendering of, of his story into into Blade Runner you know it's it's kind of like um like everything he he did in in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep only more so you know it sort of um takes it the essence of it to sort of it takes the active ingredient extracts it out and I think crime is very good for doing that it really is um, a nice way to test how things work where the in ordinary life in sort of social realist sort of fiction under less stressful circumstances you might not come to a pressure point where people have to start to react and crime puts people into that yeah. sort of position. Yeah. And um, and can you let us know a little bit about the process of what it was like writing this book? We were just briefly mentioning before, you know, trying to work out the timeline of how you yeah. were doing these, you know, quite high pressure, high pressure jobs and then somehow you've managed to write a manuscript. Um, so can you just tell us about how, how that sort of came together? Yeah, well, that was self-funded um, fellowship, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Save money, stop working for a while, and then write until you could see the money was going to run out and get <laughs> another job. Uh, is actually, in reality, that's what happens, because those political jobs, they're, they're great, they're very rewarding, um, they're really high pressure, and there's just not spare headspace. There's not a lot of spare time either, but it's, it's as much about headspace as anything. Um, and so, but this story had been rattling around in my head for a really long time, and had developed over over many years. And so, the the climactic scene, which we've agreed we are not going to discuss today. Um, no, but it's excellent, excellent, <laughs> listeners. Very, very good. Uh, it the the essence of it, the structure of it, was in a short story that I wrote unsuccessfully for a competition in 1990. Wow, really long time ago. Like I was a kid, and um, and. So that I'm not saying sort of saying that was the genesis of this whole book, but you know, Vesalius came later, for instance. But um, you know, bits of it had been around for a really long time. So by the time I sat down to write this, I had a pretty clear idea about the basic plot and the characters and who was going to do what to whom. And um, so it it made I didn't really have any kind of uh, I didn't have to sit there and go well what am I what's my first I just picked a scene to write with I know which one it was but I just sat down one day at Grub Cafe in Fitzroy and uh, and just started writing because I just thought oh, that, that's the one I had a scene in my mind let's just start writing it and the whole thing flowed from there and it, this is a very different book than that first draft of course as you would hope but um, you know it it actually already had on tap. A, an awful lot of ideas already about how it was all going to come together because I'd just been sort of dwelling on it for many years while I couldn't well I just didn't have the time, time. to sit down and yep. write it didn't stop me from thinking, thinking about, about it, it. Yeah. yeah absolutely I think you can really tell that in this book that it feels like a, a fully realized world yeah. you know it doesn't feel like it feels like you could just oh, great. you know it, as much as it is like a you know a, um, a serial killer story yeah. <laughs> it feels like you could just walk and you'd be like yep I recognize that street and yeah. I've, I've I've gone past that bar yeah, and, yeah exactly which is really wonderful and um uh, what was the process like of getting um, 
picked up by you know a firm press who have who obviously recognised this um, from you know being in the um, you know in the uh, Victorian Premier's Literary Awards 2019 shortlist. Yeah. Um, but what was that? Uh, how, how was that process? So you submit. Like, I, I don't know how these things work. So you've written this manuscript, and then you go, "What am I going to do with it?" And you decided to submit it to to this to the Victoria's Premier's Prize, or they. Yeah. How no, does I, yeah. So I. I, I had a tilt at that um, award, and that was a that was a good tip um, from my friend Andrew Netty, who um, who was shortlisted himself um, some a little while earlier, and he uh, he said, look, it just gives you good exposure. People pay attention to the shortlist, and yep. you know, it's they had hundreds of entries, and um, and you know, it's a shortlist of three. And you know there's an element of luck in getting on that shortlist. I mean, it doesn't mean that the others weren't... There, there would have yeah. been plenty of really good shortlistable ones, like, so... Like all awards. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and so I was just... I felt quite fortunate to have been you know, picked, plucked out of that. And um, But it did give a good bit of exposure. Um, I also had already been looking for an agent and, um, and I'd been in touch with Inkwell... Um, so Catherine Drayton, my, my agent, was um, already interested in the book, but because of a, a tech fail at my end, um, my, um, my uh, internet provider had rejected their <gasps> reply, yes, we'd love to read your manuscript, send more of your manuscript. I'd sent oh, them 50 no. pages, yeah. And, uh, and so then they, I never got back to them from their point of view, and I, um, I didn't get that email and so after I it's a Meg been, Ryan film waiting to happen oh, yeah. after I got shortlisted I sent a repeat um, to a few not very many but a few people just another cold email yeah saying uh, <laughs> got you, a book you may be you interested. may be now interested know? yeah <laughs> and uh, and they got back and said well we already answered you yes <laughs> and here's the email to prove it and they had the rejection thing oh wow and uh yeah, it was just like wow. And so anyway, luckily we had a second bite at that cherry, and uh, which doesn't often happen. And so, the one really, well, there are many good things about working with Inkwell, but uh, one of them is that it's a New York-based agency, the Sydney office, and um, they have an editorial staff back at at the mothership, and which is a you know a great advantage having yeah. people that do. So we did a full draft with um, some pretty expert editorial advice before we even went out to the marketplace. And so it was in, you know, it was in good enough shape to get shortlisted yep. and then they polished it up from yep. there and then we went out. And so, um, but, you know, Martin came back, Martin Hughes from a firm came back with such enthusiasm. He really understood what I was doing with this book. And uh, it was a real pleasure to, to be picked up by them. And he, he made some very good editorial suggestions that we took on board and, yeah, so it's I'm really pleased with how they've done, and they've made yeah, it a beautiful are. thing. It's, oh, it's it, the cover is very striking. The cover's great, but also how because the illustrations are integral. Yes. Oh my goodness, yes, you know, yes. And that was part of my manuscript. They were always in there, um, and you know we've got um, the permission from the Swiss publishers, Cargo, who were very generous. That's, in that was us. my other question. I was going to say, was that hard? Because I'm not quite sure because it's such an old text, but I presume mm. there's still people that have got the rights to. They don't have the rights to the original stuff. No. Um, but what happened is Carga made, uh, on the 500th anniversary of the birth of Vesalius, I think, um, they had a project in train so that in that year they were able to publish what they called the New Fabrica. And it's a new English translation of the two, the uh, 1543 and 1555 editions of, that were published in, in Vesalius's lifetime. Um, and it's, it's sort of like a comparative text and, it's, and they did new renderings of all of the illustrations from scratch. Yep. So took probably high-quality photographs and then rendered from there. And so 
we were really keen to use those beautiful, yeah. uh, very crisp digital renderings rather than finding a version that was out of copyright. We could take a photograph and of it. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. And so they were very generous in, um, you know, in, in giving permission for that and then supplied those files. And uh, Well, I think there's going to be, for people that have never heard of the Fabrica, there's going to be a lot of renewed interest thanks to your so. book. Yeah. In fact, I realise that we're, we've had such a great time. We're talking all around the book, but we haven't even we, asked yeah, you to do... We, we've oh, done yeah. a good job of, of not spoiling. <laughs> yeah, of that's yet. true. But we've got to the point where we haven't even really... Can you give us a little quick elevator pitch? Yeah, okay. So I, 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 we, we prefer the got, authors to yeah, do this got, for crime novels. We've got that yeah. it's, a, it's a serial killer. Yeah, this is serial killer. And that it's based on... Anatomy element. Yeah. So I think that's already whetted people's appetites, but you haven't even mentioned this this character Spud Murphy on the other okay. side of that. Yeah. yeah. So we'll get to Spud. Or Murphy. his wife or his sister. Yeah. Mm. So, so it's like you know, and how they all interact. And yeah, it's right. Explosively. <laughs> no spoilers. In those spoilers. <laughs> um, so so the serial killer is um, is a guy, as you've probably all guessed, um, who's obsessed with this text, and so he has. And you put those two things together. He is conducting his crimes by way of. Uh, dissections, um, and which is a very macabre um, form. Of, so I've, I've, you, know, you can see influences of things like, um, you know, Red Dragon, uh, the the predecessor to the Silence of the Lambs, yep. and um, and uh, I guess the name of the Rose and the film Seven. You know, these kinds of quite dark, obsessive crimes that yep. are um, they're sort of inward. They're mm. they're crimes that are not they're not conducted for any Body else's benefit. They are someone who is so self-contained in their obsession that it's entirely a project for their own satisfaction. You know, and that's kind of what I was aiming for with this character. So he's out there doing that, and he's being pursued by the uh, New South Wales homicide detective um, David Spud Murphy. Love that. And uh, he, uh, I do have a, a what I hope is a funny little oh, it is, vignette yes, about it, I did how laugh. he acquired that name. Yes. But anyway. Um, and uh, so he's he's leading the homicide squad into that, but the the guy by which is not unusual for obsessives uh, prepares his crime scenes incredibly well and gives them nothing to work with. Doesn't leave any DNA behind. Um, has There's made no apparent sure, motives, right? So yeah, yeah. no apparent when motives. When you start, no connection you between the victims that they can find, yep. all of that sort of stuff. And so it's really proving pretty intractable. But because there's this anatomy angle, the medicos in you know, a forensic types. Pretty early on, I don't think this is a terrible spoiler. Pretty early on, suggests that he's working from some kind of textbook, and um, uh, the detective's sister is an art historian at Sydney Uni, and she uh, is a specialist in the history of the depiction of the body, and so she becomes involved first, first place quite informally, and then a little more formally in helping the investigation in case she can spot something that they're not trained to see. Uh, and so that's how the sister gets involved, uh, that's Jo. And, um, and then along the way, um, we learn a little bit more about um, their little domestic um, life because Jo lives not too far away from Murphy and his wife Sylvia, and Sylvia and Jo are best mates. And so things sort of go from there. So, um, oh, there's so many questions. I have so many questions and I always find it very hard when we're talking about crime novels that I have read. To, sometimes I think I should not read the books before we have these podcasts. Or that read I, the first I can't, half or something. Yeah, that I can't accidentally spoil things. But um, can you tell us a little bit more about um, the characters themselves, about, about Spud um, and about Joe and about Sylvia? And, um, you know, 
Just what was, what was um, did you find uh, one of them harder to write about, like hard, harder to write from the perspective of? Because this is what we should explain, that there is, it is written from multiple, yeah. multiple perspectives. Yeah. So, um, you know, did you find some bits harder to, oh, sorry, and from the serial killer's perspective, I should yeah. also add, sorry. His, his was probably the hardest, the serial killer. Um, Stephen Porter is his name. Um, that's he, probably a good sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, hope it I, is. Think, I think that's the right answer, and you have passed, and you may continue. <laughs> so, partly because I was quite content to leave him to be a little bit of a cipher. I didn't want to go too much into any his kind traumatic of. traumatic childhood. And yeah, all the focus explanation of it. He just is, you know. Yep. And so, that doesn't give you as much traction when you're trying to portray. So, mm. I just constantly. When you're in his headspace that's more the techni- technicalities that are in front of him. He's solving problems, you know, to make sure that he's safe to, to do his business. Um, so that's... And then there's a little bit of him reacting to how it all proceeds, you know, by the time he's in the media and everything. But So I found that one the hardest one, actually, because I couldn't imagine myself into that headspace as a lived experience. And it's, as you say, it's, it's good. I'm, I'm going to be able to leave here <laughs> not in custody, so that's yeah. terrific. Um, Murphy... Um, is that was problematic. He's a complicated guy. Um, he's one of those salt of the earth, top bloke, you know, um, hard drinking. Um, he's good at his job too, right? Sporty. Like, he's good at his job. Really he's, good. He's decorated. He's a very good success rate. He's a, he's a pretty good boss, tough but fair kind of boss. Um, you know, he loses his top a couple of times but gets over it quickly, all that kind of stuff. You know, So we all know people like Murphy. I don't feel like I am anything like Murphy. It's probably not for me to judge, though. I'll let other people do that. But um, he does drink double ristrettos. So it's, I share that with him. <laughs> but, uh, and his, his whiskey preferences are from um, uh, single malts from Isla. But um, that's it, you know. Yep. Um, and so I found him a little bit harder as well. Um, Joe and Sylvia, there's a... I did a really quite uh, well-developed backstory for Sylvia that never made it into this. Um, but nevertheless, I find that a really useful exercise, actually. Yep. So four or 5,000 words of her backstory. And so I know a lot more about her than appears in this book, yep. but I had a very clear sense of who she is. She had a, uh, a pretty unpleasant um, upbringing in a country town in Western Australia, pulled herself out of that, uh, got out of town, put herself through uh, nursing school, in Western Australia, and when she could, moved east to just get away from that bad scene and start life on her own terms. And um, and so that was good for me to know about her. It's not none of that. This is a spoiler because none of that's yeah. <laughs> explicit in the book. But that gave me a really good sense of this is a you know this is a, she's she's got good resources and uh, has and has a good sense of herself. Um, and then Joe, as an academic in the humanities, um, you know. My background of, yep. I know plenty of people. Look, she's, mm. she's kind of based on, there's an awful lot of women academics in, in the humanities in particular that I've, I've known over the years that I've got an awful lot of respect for who are really good humans and, and really have a good sense of how they fit in the world and, and, um, and how, how society and culture operate at a pretty nuanced level. And so, you know, so Joe jo is based on a bunch, in some ways, on a, on a bunch of different women that I know and love and admire in my life. And I'm very fortunate to have people like both Joe and Sylvia there. So I found that even though they're getting into the headspace of writing from a woman's perspective, obviously there are things that one doesn't know as a, as a bloke. Um, <laughs> and you've got to, you know, be a bit uh, sort of humble about that um, and recognise that. But they are based on people that, um, that I have a lot of affection and respect for. 
Yeah. So that helped a lot. Yeah. I think they, that really comes across because, um, yeah, I, I really, I think Joe was probably my, my favourite, my favourite character in the book. You could really, you really went on the journey with her yeah. and sort of her and, and her perspective. Um, yeah. Well, she's really, my favourite yeah. too. So it's probably not surprising. <laughs> Although, um, uh, Ruby Ashbior, who's my copy editor, her her favourite, she let slip to me right near the end is Sylvia. So, <laughs> so there yeah. you go. See, yeah. I think that's and that's wonderful, everyone. And then we will judge the people whose favourite person is the serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> One thing I found myself really enjoying is is the depictions of Sydney. Mm. You do that really well. Oh, great. Um, and you're you're a Melbourneian, but you you explained to us that you grew up in I, Sydney's west. I grew up in Sydney's west. Yeah. Which is like, for me, I feel like that's the heart of Sydney. That's that's where. Everything happens. Yeah. That's where I yeah. live now, so it absolutely is because I'm there. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it's Parramatta boy. Um, but the um, the sort of ancestral um, family, you know, we're, we're St George Dragons people. Um, sorry, Dad, who went over to Parramatta, but uh, <laughs> I, I, that never stuck for me. But um, and uh, but and you know we have we have sort of a couple of generations back. You know, um, legends of rent, renting in Coogee. If only we were still in Coogee. Said, yeah, but we were renters, so we yeah. wouldn't be still in Coogee. <laughs> You know, love Coogee. A couple of my brothers have um, have spent a bit of time living there, and in fact, Joe's apartment is one of oh. my brother's old apartments. Ah, I was going to say because I really could I could picture that apartment when yeah. you were writing about the apartment. I could one hundred percent see it. Yeah, so yeah, it's a real place. Yep. There we go. <laughs> so, yeah, and so um, you know, so I've I've got a lot of it's a beautiful, beautiful city, you know, and it and it's very picturesque, and so having the opportunity to write, especially. You know, to have things happen at different places around town, even though a lot of it does happen in that uh, Coogee Randwick area. Um, that you know, there is crime scenes all over, and um, having that opportunity, especially anywhere near water, this city, you know, on a clear day, is just spectacular. Yeah, you know, yeah, and such a contrast, right? You've got this contrast of this, these bloody, and I mean that in the literal sense, murders. Um, <laughs> And the yeah. beautiful scenery and surroundings. And part of it's the flora <laughs> as well. Um, that's a really important part of um, of Sydney is um, you know trees and and flowers and and that that's a really big part of the changing seasons as well. Do you reckon it was easier to write such a terrifying book uh, with that distance? No doubt, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, like imagine it in a in a place that was gloomy and a bit too gothic all the time. Like, yeah, yeah, but as, as, as someone who's, who's not living there at the time... Oh, I see, yeah, yeah. Put uh, yourself away from the action. Yeah, may, maybe. Actually, I hadn't thought about that. But, yeah, that, that's probably true that write, writing this when I'm physically somewhere else and living somewhere else, um, probably that's, that's the case. But I was also inspired by um, Elizabeth Harrower, who um, provides the epigram to this novel, um, who wrote... Uh, a number of, of Sydney-based novels that where where the city, the, in, the sort of physical environment, is a really important part of um, of her narrative all the way through, and that really I just wanted to sort of pay homage, I guess, and and and, and maybe steal um, perhaps um, <laughs> a little bit of that as well for myself is that it it's it just sort of situated me in the scene of what's going on, so it makes mm. it a lot easier to write if you can imagine yourself there. Yeah, very clever. And very creepy. <laughs> that's 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 the vibe I'm getting from this. Uh, what do you want readers to take away from your novel? Wow. Um, well, I want them to enjoy it um, first of all, and I hope that the plotting. There's a certain kind of crime reader, and I'm one of them, who um, who really get a lot out of um, out of following a fairly intricate and meticulously constructed plot. So 
I don't think there are any potholes in here. I guess I'm asking for it. If anybody <laughs> finds one, better let me know. But I think I've got all that covered. I mean, I had a lot of time to think about it. Yep. Um, so there's the satisfactions of, of a good yarn. And one of the things that um, did not happen to me doing studying English at, at university is I never stopped reading for just the pure bloody pleasure of it. And, and I love a good yarn and I like interesting characters and that's, that's enough. Um, but I do also have... Um, a f I'd be careful with... I'm going to be careful here with the spoiler angle, but there is a social purpose as well. Um, <coughs> and I don't agree with Harold Bloom that you have to choose between literary quality and effect and, and having an effect in the world, uh, what he calls politics, but it's much more than just politics. I, I don't think you actually have to choose between those two things. I think you can, you can do both. And I'm hoping that's what I've done here. So I'd like people to have a, a sense of a satisfying yarn that they also have some, you know, sense of what it is I'm trying to do and say as well about how we live today. Wow. Absolutely. That's an excellent way of saying saying that without ruining or spoiling anything in the book. Good. So, well done. Lucky. Yeah. You're going to do this again? <laughs> Am I going to do an, another one? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've got – I'm actually working – You. funny you asked this a little oh. earlier. I'm working on uh, an idea for a political thriller set in the Second World War. Um, oh, or starts in the second that is different. That is different, yeah. Um, that I'm, I'm sort of working that up. But I could see, uh, I could see a sequel to this, and I've got some ideas for that as well. Okay, because that that was my that I had a question that I running sort of short on time, so I didn't ask every single question I had. But that was one of my questions. Was like, do we see more in this in this world? Could, because it, I think we could do that. Part of it is because partly out of interest of length, but um, but also to, to have a nice clean finish is that Martin gave me some very good advice saying you can you just lose the last 6,000 words. You don't need that. Ah, that hurt. Anyway, I did lop off that limb. Oh. But one of the things that got... Lop off that limb. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, crikey. Um, one of the things that, uh, that happened was that it left a few more potential tiny but present loose ends. So... You know, does the does it finish as cleanly? Actually, the attentive reader will say, "Okay, there might not be plot holes, but there are a few things that are you, there are threads you could pull here." And I reckon that could be that could be a pretty nice basis for what comes next in this world. We will wait in anticipation. Indeed, John Byron, thank you for being with us. Thank you both for having me. It's been really great. Yarn. The tribute is published by Firm Press, and you can buy it right now from Booktopia.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au